and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Monique Attinger is a certified holistic nutritionist who is a world-renowned expert on the plant, plant compound called oxalate. On social media and on her website, she is known as the Low Ox Coach. She is your partner in reaching your health goals through a focus on reducing your oxalate intake in combination with a high-density nutrition diet and targeted nutritional supplements. Sometimes reducing oxalate alone is not enough. Monique's clientele include many with complex dietary challenges, including the overlap of individual food sensitivities or allergies with other therapeutic diets, including low histamine and low salicylate approaches. Monique's coaching helps her clients who have been eating extra healthy, in quotes, some of which who have spent decades following careful eating plans, yet also find that they are not feeling well. Many chronic diseases have an inflammatory component, and oxalate can go unrecognized, severely affecting people without them knowing the cause. You can find her on her website at www.loxcoach.com or on Twitter at loxcoach1. Monique, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. This is great, Casey. I really appreciate you inviting me to be on here. Um, anything I can do to get the word out about particularly oxalate, just because it can be running under the radar. And I'm sure there are other people out here who are listening who are in the same position I was about 15 years ago, where I was apparently doing everything right and still wasn't getting any better. And that's, I now think of that as the hallmark of oxalate because we don't, we don't recognize it in the diet. And then all sorts of other things can happen as, as oxalate does its dirty work. And that's why complicated dietary things happen. And, you know, honestly, I'm starting, I'm starting to think that I need to have t-shirts made that say when in doubt, blame oxalate, because there's just so much stuff going on there. And, um, you know, even for people who seem to be doing well on their diet, like, why not dodge a bullet? Because this stuff bioaccumulates. So yeah, totally, yeah. It it's is, become my passion because it was game changing for well, me. I can absolutely tell that it is your passion. And we love talking about it. We've talked to Sally Norton twice, who's also an expert in Oxlade. And she, who I, who I love. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she actually joined your group, which is how the two of you met. Is that right? That, yes. Um, it, it's not actually my group. It belongs to a researcher, Susan Owens, who was the first one who kind of stumbled across oxalate in researching some of the issues that she was having with her father's health and then into her own family's health and then recognizing how important sulfate chemistry was. And that letter by a circuitous route to oxalate and she realized that this had been kind of under the surface and affecting her health. She started a support group and, you know, about 18 years ago was when she first came out of the gate. And I'm about 14 years uh, after discovering Oxlate and joining her group and then learning and then becoming an admin and then changing my career. So it, when I say life-changing, I don't mean just in terms of my health, although when I found the diet at 48, I was sick enough. I didn't think I'd live to see my kids grow up. And I had a three-year-old and an eight-year-old at the time. Wow. So I was a late in life parent and not a happy thought to think you're not going to make it until your kids are adults. Right. And now I'm a woman in my sixties and have better energy 
and better health overall that I've probably had since my 30s. And so like just so profoundly changed my life. Um, I was originally an IT person. I was doing um, information technology from the information management side of things. I have a master's in library and information science. And so I went back and, and retrained to be a holistic practitioner. But the interesting thing for me is that is that that research bent that I've got because of that master's degree in library and information science has done nothing but serve me in this thing because we're really we're really talking about stuff that's leading if not bleeding edge of science where we're just starting to figure out what may be going on here and where conventional medicine is still really focused on kidney stones but the the research is starting to say other things and and so that desire to find the answer has really helped me and in the long run been one of the the best things in terms of helping my clients who often come with complicated needs and complicated medical history and wow. complicated uh you know food sensitivities and things i i'm just i don't think there's a week that goes by where i don't get a client that sends me into the research for something wow yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing to look back on certain experiences we've had in our life. And we wonder, like, I wonder why I had to go through that. And it's only later in life that we learn the, the nuance and how those things can really help us later down the road. It's just, I, I look back too, like when I first started getting interested in health and nutrition, I, you know, got my first job at a gym when I was like 16 years old. Like we knew everything there was to know about nutrition. You know, we had the cereal that was fortified and part of this complete breakfast with the orange juice and the piece of toast. And that was fine. And then, you, you know, you learn a lot the way that fat's really bad for you and you start to learn okay maybe fat wasn't as bad as we thought you learn other things are really good for you and of, of course things like sweet potatoes and spinach and chard is really great for you and of course you want to throw those all in a blender every single morning with beets and all all the things i used to throw in there every single morning <laughs> it's just it's just crazy to think that that we we think we know so much about quote unquote healthy but we we fail to see some of these signs and symptoms because we think we're doing the right thing. It's it's totally crazy. Well, there's that, but there's also with oxalate, there's this slow and relentless, I would argue, bioaccumulation that's going on. And and so we don't immediately link the food with the problem and that disconnect is part of what's working against us here, right? So, I'll give you a great example. Um, it took me, you know, till I was 48 to stumble into oxalate. And the only reason I actually stumbled into oxalate was that the functional medicine, uh, focused naturopath that I was seeing diagnosed my young daughter at three with an oxalate problem. And so I then went, well, if my daughter's got to be on this special diet and she's three and she's smart and pretty independent for a three-year-old, she's not going to eat differently than everybody at the table. There's no way this is going to fly. So I knew somebody had to model it for her. So I 
I remember having this conversation with my three-year-old. You and I are going to eat this way and we're going to figure out just how good it is. Because, you know, I'm not, I obviously can't have the big biomedical (laughs) discussion with a three-year-old, but I wanted to give her some positive vibes on it. So then we start doing this diet and the same, keep in mind, same functional naturopathic doctor had been treating me for years before my daughter was born. And I start doing this diet. And if I don't see all of my problems starting to improve all at the same time, and these were apparently unrelated things, like I had a low thyroid and I had a low I had low adrenals. They had been, my cortisol had been tested. The pattern was funky. Um, I had really bad issues with digestion. I was taking handfuls of digestive enzymes, but I also had low immunity and my exercise resilience was very poor. So if I exercised, it took me two or three days to recover. And I had sometimes joint pains and sometimes muscle pains, and I had some insomnia And honestly, I just thought I had a lemon for a body. Uh, And at that point, I was actually worried that I had passed on those lemon genes to my kids. And the interesting thing was seeing all of these problems, not necessarily looking like they're related to each other, right? Start to improve all at the same time. I went, ooh, what's that? (laughs) And that sent me down the rabbit hole, so to speak, but it also resulted in, you know, my health improving to such an extent that I will never go back to eating high oxalate foods, but I was doing all of those things, beets, chard, almonds, like I shudder to think how much oxalate I was taking in a day. And And doing all the things, you know, gluten-free, not eating dairy, blah, 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 blah. Like, because that's what you're supposed to do. And I wasn't getting better. And that's now become really the hallmark for me. Because here's what I would say. What if we've been slowly bioaccumulating oxalate for decades? And the reason we didn't see that it was a problem was the tissues weren't saturated yet. But then as the tissues start to become saturated, then bigger things start happening. And and for me, I ended up with my gallbladder out at 20. That was probably the first shot over the bow. And it turns out gallstones can be oxalate-based. I am not surprised at all, right? Um, all the digestive issues. Well, people blamed it on the fact that I had my gallbladder out. I don't take any digestive enzymes now. I still don't have a gallbladder and I'm older than I was. So if it was really just about having my gallbladder out, it wouldn't have improved, right? For me, the fact that the, the big lever that I pulled was oxalate and that one big lever changed so many things I have to say, what if, what if for a lot of people, as we're getting older, it's not aging, it's accumulation of this oxalate in our bodies. And, and we're thinking that these are nutrient dense foods. But as I look backwards, I realize, sure, they look nutrient dense, 
but nobody's doing the cost benefit of the nutrients against the toxins or the poisons that are present. And while while oxalate won't kill you if you sit down and eat a serving of spinach, there's enough oxalate in there, I would argue, to exceed your body's ability to get rid of it quickly. And then that's where the problem starts because then it's in circulation and then you can traffic it into tissues, almost in a case of mistaken identity. Because we do have cell transporters that move sulfate. Those cell, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Those cell transporters that move sulfate can also move oxalate. And so if a cell transporter from your liver, for instance, is looking in the interstitial fluid for sulfate, but oxalate's rich in that fluid, and it can move either one, what if it's picking it up and pulling it into the tissues instead of picking up sulfate? Well, maybe that affects your digestion because maybe all of a sudden you're not handling fats as well. That was certainly one of my problems. Um, your bicarbonate transporters can also move oxalate. And that can be another impact on your digestion because the pancreas is actually a big consumer of bicarbonate, which shouldn't be surprising because the pancreas has to release not just enzymes, but also um, you know, chemicals to bring the pH level up of the food as it comes out of the stomach, because our stomachs are very acidic, very right? But but the ideal pH to absorb nutrients in the intestines is very different. So, so if you have a pancreas, which is not able to get all the bicarbonate that it needs, and maybe you're not completely sending just straight acidic stomach contents down the pipe, but it's not at the right pH for optimal absorption. What's that going to do, right? So there's subtle things, but bigger things, pervasive things. The research shows that we can end up with oxalate crystals in our joints and that if we have non-typical arthritis, which doesn't act like we expect, we should be looking for oxalate. How many people are aware of that research? None. Because I actually, I actually had arthritic problems as well, which they, they weren't sure if I had rheumatoid arthritis or if I had some other form of arthritis, you know, like. I I actually almost feel like a poster girl for how many things you can have had that are oxalate related. And so what if, like, I wish more people would just entertain a little curiosity here. Um, and I don't, you know, I jokingly say when in doubt, blame oxalate because you can have systemic things going on. But wouldn't it behoove us to be a little more curious about what oxalate could be doing if it doesn't turn up as kidney stones? Like we only look for it if, if we have kidney stones or if the kidneys are completely failing between, you know, no oxalate in our body at all and failing kidneys or kidney stones. There's, there's a big time lag, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. It's just so crazy. Like our usual suspects in the diet have, have kind of transformed over the years, but it's kind of gone to sugar and insulin resistance and a lot of vegetable oils. We know those things are really harmful and bad for us. And I know for me personally that I have to stay on a zero sugar diet because if I have any sugar, I will have crazy anxiety and I won't sleep. Not worth it. There's not any sweet food for me at this point that is worth feeling that anxiety for any amount of time. So I just keep it out. It's easier for me to be absent. It looks like probably same for you. Um, yeah. and, but, but, but I know that because I feel the effects 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever it is after the fact that I eat that thing. Whereas with oxalate, you're right. It is kind of a long-term kind of a buildup thing. It's very different. And so it's, a, I, it looks a lot harder to kind of diagnose. Absolutely. I think that's why it's been able to run under the radar so efficiently and why I can't fault anybody for not necessarily discovering this in some more robust way sooner. We've kind of stumbled into it. Um, But now that I have, uh, the real challenge here is that it can be part of a perfect storm causing other things. So it's pro-inflammatory. It does drive inflammation. It can trigger the inflammasome. It's a mitochondrial toxin. All these things can contribute to other vulnerabilities that we might have, right? So, um, you know, uh, with people who have oxalate toxicity issues, you know, Things like anxiety are kind of top of my list of common symptoms as well. And part of the challenge there is that we can be anxious because the immune system's being constantly stimulated by this low-grade inflammation and maybe at multiple locations in the body. The brain's way of responding to that report from the immune system, you know, we got a problem, we got a problem, we got a problem. And obviously our bodies are programmed for if the immune system's reporting inflammation, it's got to be an injury or an infection, right? Oxalates, neither of those. The immune system's not ready for it, right? But it's reporting. The nervous system is prepared for an infection or an injury. So it says, great, I'll help you out. And it depresses serotonin and it depresses dopamine. So based on my reading, what the nervous system is doing is then saying, okay, so then we need to rest. We need to We need to tone everything down, but you can't do that forever. And, and so these chronic things are really probably more detrimental than, than, um, than an acute thing where it's easier to diagnose because it can fester for a long time before you actually get it. And Think about it. When you think about the big ticket diseases that we deal with now, heart disease, cancer, obesity, high blood pressure, and metabolic syndrome, which all kind of spin around together, um, they're all like chronic inflammation of one kind or another, right? Or they're, um, you know, dealing with where we've disrupted how the body's functioning and oxalate's a disruptor as well. So we don't want to drive inflammation. We don't want our metabolism disrupted. And, and here we have this thing that's running our under the radar. And it's not that we don't know that it's a poison either, because there's oxalate poisonings all the time. 
Um, when I look at places, uh, particularly that report in Asia about things like people ending up poisoned because their food's been wrapped in banana leaves. Well, banana leaves are really high in oxalate. That's one of the things that would be bad. Um, or you read about a child who may have been poisoned because they chewed on a rhubarb leaf. Mm. Well, we may eat the stalk. It's not really good for you either. It's one of the highest oxalate things we still call food, but the, but the leaf will kill you. Right. Or, or Diefenbachia where, where animals end up with poisonings because they go and chew on a Diefenbachia leaf because somebody's got a plant in their house. These are all oxalate. Um, and it's interesting to me that when I was a kid, we knew enough about oxalate that I was told don't touch a rhubarb leaf. Wow. Um, but, but we sort of, it was almost like we've, we've decided certain things are okay. We gave them a green card, but we never did this thing where you trade off how much oxalate for how much nutrient. Yeah. And I think there's places where we've done a very big disservice because we haven't, we haven't done that kind of comparison. Interesting. And you mentioned rhubarb, which if I'm understanding the history of all of this the most, isn't that kind of how we first discovered that this was a big problem? As far as we know, like in England, when rhubarb was in season and they would have it, or the rich people would have it maybe with like some kind of a tea or something. And it was the combination of those things would make people very sick. Do I, do I understand that correctly? I think um, from a historical standpoint, where we figured this out was really the kidney stones. And so if you started to see kidney stones, um, you know, season kind of that, and that might, that might be immediately after, you, you know, tender greens and rhubarb and things like that. But, you know, I'm not, uh, I haven't looked into the, the history of, of how rhubarb and tea in combination would have, would have made people quite sick, but, wouldn't surprise me at all because yeah. stewed rhubarb, just a half a cup is like almost 800 milligrams of oxalate. Like wow. that is eye-wateringly high. And then you combine your tea with that, which is another, well, it's, tea's almost benign compared to rhubarb, but it's still another 20, 30 milligrams. And, you know, if you're doing something like that for a few days in a row, like think about it, your kidneys normally do or at least we assume they normally do the lion's share of the work. You're just overloading them. And then we can secrete back into the gut. But again, what if the gut's being really irritated? Like you're just overloading all these, these systems that have, we have to excrete it. We can't, we can't do something like the liver does with other things like histamine and salicylate, which I also do some work with. The liver doesn't, technically deal with histamine, but it does with salicylate and it can detox it, right? Manipulate it, make it less toxic, make it more soluble, get it out of the system. Oxalate, it's just a straight ahead excretion. And it's all about what the bandwidth is on that. Um, we can't break it down. Histamine, we can break down. We have, we have enzymes for that, but we, we have none of that capacity with oxalate. Wow. That, yeah, that's so interesting. and so well explained. Why don't we, why don't we define what is oxalate and also talk about like, why, 
why plants have it and, and understand that plants need this compound for their own benefit. And as entitled human beings that we are, guess what? Plants are not around for us to eat and, and destroy them and kill their babies and, and make them not procreate. They want to take over the world just like everything else. Can you talk about why plants use oxalate and what uses it has? Yeah, I sure can. Because the thing is, you know, I do have to laugh when people think that, you know, plants somehow want to be eaten. <laughs> it just, it that's not how it works. Plants want to defend themselves from predation to some extent as well, right? Although it may be useful for their fruits to be eaten by certain creatures right because point. like birds might eat fruits, but that distributes seeds, right? Yeah, great point. It doesn't mean they want their structure eaten because how do they produce the, you know, the seed if they're, if they're being eaten, right? So I'll use spinach as an example, just because it's such a clear example. So in spinach, you have a plant using oxalate for more than one purpose. So plants use oxalate in part to be able to draw minerals up into their structure. So oxalate is biochemically a mineral chelator. So it will bind with minerals. And in some cases, it'll create quite an insoluble bond. Your calcium oxalate kidney stone is an example of how good insoluble bonds work because that'll mean that stuff precipitates out into your urine because it, it's insoluble and it's going to tend to come together. Um, it can also work with other minerals though too. Oxalate has a whole list of what I call preferred dance partners. And that would be most of your double positive mineral ions. So if you're thinking magnesium, to some extent, iron, zinc, copper, like lots of minerals that we actually need to have in our system can be potential targets of the chelation action from oxalate. So that's one thing that oxalate does. And plants use that. Plants use that to get minerals in. Plants may also be using oxalate and even in its crystalline form to support things like photosynthesis. So they, they're not only building it into their structure in one way or another, but they're using it, I'm going to say metabolically, but like for their, their, their function so to allow them to do their work more efficiently, right? But the other way that plants can use oxalate is as a defense against predation. And so your question was kind of leading into this part. Defense against predation, um, who's most likely a plant's greatest nemesis? Well, it's actually an insect, right? right? And so if you have something like spinach and you have those nice tender looking leaves, if you've ever grown spinach, and back in the day I have, Spinach doesn't tend to get eaten much by insects. They'll nibble at it. Sometimes you'll get some insects who can really handle spinach. But by and large, spinach doesn't need a lot of, you know, pesticides and stuff on it. And mostly that's because it's got so much oxalate in there. And so much of it is crystalline and insoluble oxalate that spinach can actually damage the mouth of the insect that's trying to eat it. 
And that would also apply to rhubarb plants. I mean, back in the day when I was growing up, almost everybody I knew had a backyard rhubarb plant. Well, those leaves looked pretty pristine. And that's partially because they're not nutritious. They're they're more poisonous than they are beneficial. Wow. And so it's you like plants can be using this to prevent um you know, insects from being able to eat them. It's a really effective defense. If the if the insect can no longer chew because its mouth has been all broken up by these crystals, well, that's the end of the game for the insect. And certainly the plant wins. Wow. So I've never made that connection before. That makes a lot of sense. I'm thinking about Lear Keith. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Lear Keith. She's the author of The Vegetarian Myth. Um, and she yes. has a, a hilarious, I, I never get sick of this story, hilarious story um, where she was trying to grow cabbage, I believe, in her garden. And the snails would always eat it. So she tried all these crazy different ways to not harm the snails and to save the cabbage. And I, I'm pretty sure that cabbage is lower oxalate. Is that why they would go to that it's very low oxalate so slugs love it okay wow i've never made that connection wow and one of the things that actually helps with keeping them away from um like keeping the slugs away from something is diatomaceous earth and why would that work you've got all these crystals it's not nice to them it damages their their skin as they're trying to get over it so essentially those kinds of crystals are embedded in the spinach, right? But they're not in cabbage. Cabbage is actually, you know, I think one of our best choices in terms of a vegetable, if you're going to eat it, low in carbs, high in nutrients, good sulfur, all kinds of things to, you know, to, to recommend cabbage and very low oxalate, very low. Wow. So interesting. So we around here, we follow a carnivore diet. And so we've eliminated a lot of plant foods, but I am making right now a batch of kimchi, which is made out of cabbage as well. Is that why we ferment cabbage and not why we ferment things like spinach? Well, I think spinach is probably, there's more than one reason why we wouldn't ferment it. I mean, it wilts to nothing. And it's right? gross. <laughs> uh, yeah. That too, but it, you know, so cabbage has got more structure that allows you to do something like fermentation and still have a palatable texture at the other end. But um, you know, I think traditionally a lot of the high oxalate foods were prepared in certain ways, and that's another thing. As we've gotten, you know, to the modern day, we decided, oh well, you know, all those people in the past they boiled things, but. Boiling's nasty because then we lose nutrients into the water, so we have to eat things raw. Well, if you boil spinach, you can lose 35 to 40% of the oxalate that's in there. Still too high. Don't eat it. But <laughs> but but if you were only having it once a year and it was only harvestable for or harvested for two or three weeks of that year, then a little bit of spinach might not have killed you, especially if you were boiling it. And oh, by the way, people tended to eat it with a cream sauce, which would have provided calcium. And so if you had soluble oxalate available that you would be more freely absorbing, binding with minerals can help. Not a get out of jail free card, but it can help. So, which kind of leads me into the fact that there's more than one kind of oxalate, but let me finish the idea of how we cook things. So 
There's lots of traditional ways of preparing foods, which would have by default reduced oxalate. So pickled beets, they sit in that pickling liquid. They sit there for a long time before you eat them. You can be dropping, again, a third or more of the oxalate there. And if you're only eating it as a condiment, you might get away with it. It depends on what your throughput is in terms of excretion. But yeah, then we decided, oh, well, we can grate raw beets and we can put them in a salad. So um, traditional cooking and preparation would have made a difference. Um, and that leads us into this soluble versus insoluble. So crystalline oxalate is insoluble oxalate. When you eat that, you're going to be less likely to absorb it but let's stop and think about sandpaper running its way through the yeah. inside of you. Not a good idea, right? So leaky gut's almost epidemic now. Could that have something to do with the fact that we've upped our oxalate, right? But the other kind of oxalate is the soluble oxalate. This is the oxalate ion unbound to a mineral which can be freely absorbed into our system. It'll be moved by passive transport, which means all you need is a, is a concentration gradient between the gut and the bloodstream and you're off to the races, right? So, you know, when people think, oh, if I fix my leaky gut and I have, you know, a really strong, healthy gut lining, I'll be fine. No, you won't, because this thing doesn't, this thing doesn't care if your gut lining is strong and good or not. And, and at the same time as those things are true, we also have discovered antibiotics, which has been the boon to the 20th century. People who would have died have lived, and thank God for antibiotics. But the kinds of gut bacteria that tend to break down oxalate are very fragile in the face of antibiotics. And like, while many of the gut bacteria species may have some capacity to use oxalate as fuel, our big gun in the space is called oxalobacter formigenes, and there'll be no pronunciation test at the end. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't I just, have to read that in the introduction. <laughs> Salicylate <laughs> was hard enough. <laughs> yeah, oxalobacter formigenes. And the thing about oxalobacter is that it eats oxalate first and only. So it's an obligate oxalate degrading bacteria, but that one will be killed off really easily and really quickly by antibiotics. So we don't have the right gut bacteria. We don't process foods like we used to. We eat extremely high levels of it. And so, you know, our nutritional advice tells us if you don't feel good, eat more of these That's things, right. eat more almonds, eat more spinach, eat Right. And so it's like a perfect storm. Uh, and and how many people do you know who have had to ultimately go to something like carnivore or go to something like keto? And if you do keto right, you're going to inadvertently drop your oxalate. And that's been a fix for them. So for me, I wasn't doing keto right. And I 
I had to go the next level because I was using, you know, almond flour and blah, blah, blah. Such a but, great point. Such uh, a great so point. There's all these people out there who are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to follow the good advice. But I do think that one of the reasons why carnivore may be taking off is because that's a diet where you essentially drop your oxalate to zero or as close to zero as you're ever going to get. And then all of a sudden this poison, like keep in mind, big enough dose, this sucker can kill you. Okay. I don't know how high you'd have to go on salicylate or histamine to kill yourself. Right. I mean, we can, we can kill ourselves with oxalate at dietary levels. We can do damage, big damage at dietary levels. There's lots of interesting case studies on PubMed. And so what are we doing to ourselves in this environment where we're trying to do the right thing? Chronic inflammation is taking off. Anti-inflammatory diets are telling you eat more, eat more spinach, eat more almonds, eat more. And, and, and people are just trying to do the right thing. I think, I, I think it is a perfect storm. Yeah, no, I agree. And I I think back on the book that I first found your work, The Great Plant-Based Con by Jane Buxton, which is fabulous. And, you know, most carnivores that read this, there's a whole chapter on the carnivore diet, but this is not a a carnivore book. They might be a little bit disappointed because it's not necessarily promoting just a carnivore diet. It's just, it's it's more to say like these, these can be problem areas and this is why you need to have respect for certain plants. And it's like, it's also like the work of uh, Dr. Bill Schindler, Eat Like a Human. And he just says Plants should scare the hell out of you. It's not to say never eat plants. And I'm a carnivore and I tell people it's not never eat plants. It's that you should respect these things and you should pay attention to how all of these different cultures around the world have treated these plants over, you know, millennia. And a lot of the plants that we're used to seeing in our produce section of the grocery store didn't even really exist in the way that they do, you know, 100 years, 200 years ago. We are breeding these kinds of things for our own, you know, for our own usage. When when we don't realize some of those poisons that are coming with it, and I love I love that you made the comment earlier about combining certain foods, which which again like there's cultures in South America that eat potatoes, but they also eat it with clay. And I've I've speculated about this, and I'll ask you the same question I asked Sally too. Like when I was a kid, I I didn't really like to drink milk, but if I had peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, I loved a big tall glass of milk. Could that be? I was maybe craving the calcium because I was eating high oxalate peanuts and peanut butter. I think it's absolutely possible. Wild. Because the thing is, is that when that oxalate binds with a mineral, then at least you're going to get it through your gut and out as opposed to that soluble ion making it into your system and then additional problems going on. Right. Um, I do think that we don't understand yet the subtleties of why we would crave certain things or why we would want certain things. Now, that is not to say I, like you, have to keep my carbs as close to zero as possible because my metabolism has been damaged and I I simply, you know, can't I don't my appetite doesn't regulate properly if I add more than a minimal amount of carbs. I have to have to handle that really carefully. I am essentially a carnivore that does seem to work better for me. I have better energy. I feel better, you know. Um, but 
that aside, you know, the unique situation of somebody whose metabolism is damaged aside, what's the mechanism by which we crave things? Our bodies know certain things by taste, you know, and they associate those nutrients with the taste and who knows what subtle stuff's going on there. Because I remember being a kid and I didn't want chocolate ice or I didn't want chocolate cake without ice cream. Ah, funny. And again, it's like, I wanted vanilla ice cream. I didn't necessarily want chocolate ice cream. With yeah. it. So, it, you know, that would have been partially the fix for the chocolate issue. Or um, think about how a lot of things get served typically, like, um, you know, things like potatoes with sour cream or like we're, it's like we're kind of craving the the thing that's going to balance out some of the problem in a food and i don't think that's necessarily uh accident i think our i think our systems have recognized certain things and we may not be consciously aware but that doesn't mean that there's not something going on um at the uh, subconscious level, yeah. if you will. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I don't eat a lot of fish, but every few months I'll just like, I want salmon so badly. I think we just kind of push those kind of things down and not really pay attention to what our body is truly asking for. So I think that's such a good point and such a great, um, insight. It, even if it's just speculation, I think it's, I think there's absolutely something there. We can all do a much better job paying attention to what our bodies are craving. I love your website. You have a great blog. I love that you write about these things. And one of my favorite things on there was the dirty dozen. So we know there's the dirty dozen of these are the, the, the dozen foods that have the most pesticides that you either need to right. be really cautious of. You need to, you know, buy organic where possible or, you know, grow it yourself and just avoid a lot of the pesticides. You wrote a blog about the dirty dozen in two parts, which I really love. And we don't have to go to every single one of those things, but what are some of the common foods that we see on there? I know we've talked about a few already, but what are some of the highest oxalate foods that have made your dirty dozen list? Yeah, I should, I, I should do one every year because there's always a new culprit that sort of emerges somewhere, right? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, wow. One of the things on the Dirty Dozen that I included last time was turmeric because there was this whole golden milk thing going on. And, you know, turmeric, while it's got great anti-inflammatory components in there, the only way to get those and not then be like a hamster on a wheel with the oxalate, which drives inflammation, and then the curcumin, which takes it down, is to get curcumin, is to get the extract from it. So turmeric made my dirty dozen list before. There's not, there doesn't seem to be the same fascination with golden milk right now, so I might replace it with something else. But that was one of them. Funny. Almonds. Almonds, almonds, everything almonds out there. You go to buy something gluten free and it's almond flour. Um, almond milk. Almonds, uh, yeah, almonds. And almond milk only has a fraction of what's in almonds themselves, but it's not your friend either. So the thing with almonds is that, like, I think I figured out that there's 10 milligrams of oxalate in every gram of almond. So is that like one almond? Well, no, an almond might be one or two grams. Like it's astonishing how, how concentrated a source it is. So 
What I would say is if you like nuts, there's a new nut on the market that has just come out of Central and South America called the Baru nut. There's in the same ounce of almonds that would be about 300 milligrams of oxalate, an ounce of Baru nuts is 1.7. Go wow. buy yourself some Baru nuts and enjoy, wow. right? Um uh, the Dirty Dozen did include beets and beet greens, again, really, really high, really concentrated source, both parts to the plant, like just don't go there. Swiss chard is a bad guy. Um, I'll say it again, rhubarb is one of the highest oxalate things that we still call food. Um, like between 700 and 800 milligrams in a half cup stew. Don't go there wow. either. Wow. Yeah, just some of these are just so high. Some of the gluten-free alternatives are really nasty. Teff, which is one that's relatively new for a while, was getting everybody's attention. Oh my gosh, that sucker is high. So a lot of those gluten-free grains, I would avoid them. If you want a gluten-free grain, um, I also have have been working on a clean 15, which are the good guys nice. in, the, in the diet. And um, I'll be releasing that one soon. But there's a new grain out of Africa, which is from the millet family. It's called, I think, Fonio. I'm not sure exactly oh. how it's pronounced, but um, lovely, nutty tasting. If you enjoy grains, this would be a place to go. Um, there are other spices which are really big ones. So cinnamon, I love cinnamon. I now buy cinnamon extract and get it that way if I'm going to use a little bit of cinnamon in something. 35 milligrams in a teaspoon. And when you think about things like pumpkin spice, where they're not just using cinnamon, they're using nutmeg, which is high. They're using clove, which is high. It's just... Uh, a perfect storm. You add that to the fact that you're also eating potentially wheat, which has a fair amount of oxalate and potentially, um, you know, carrot, because sometimes they do it as a carrot, you know, pumpkin spice kind of thing. Um, carrots, surprisingly high if you're eating them raw. Like wow. the, in some cases, how you process them, again, makes a difference. So we will eat carrots here, but I will boil them. And then it's got enough soluble oxalate that even though it's high, if you eat them plain, it's very doable if you eat them boiled. Now, if I want them in a cold application, I boil them and then I cool them and then I use them that way. So, you know, so there's some tips to play with some of these things, but, you know, some of the really big guys, there's no way to make beets or spinach okay for you. But probably the biggest the biggest issue in people's diet is chocolate, you know, and, and so many of us are trying to be extra healthy. And so we eat the dark chocolate yep. and that's got even higher oxalate in it. So <clears throat> I think an ounce of dark chocolate brings you in around, um, like somewhere around 60 or 70 milligrams of oxalate, like a tablespoon, which doesn't weigh that much, of just plain um, cocoa powder is about 45. And those are 
the lower end of the numbers, some depending on the on the process that they use for chocolate can be even higher than that. So when you see these these keto goodies that say no flour and what they're using for the structure of a baked good is cocoa powder. Like don't walk, run. Yikes. <laughs> Yikes. With the almond flour and all those other things that we mentioned earlier. I seriously, like in my morning blend tech every single day was almond milk with, I would put probably almond butter. I would put cups a few cups of spinach and raw beets blended up and that was my my morning every single day it's it's just crazy to hear you talk about the harms of all these things and how they can accumulate we also know that things like potatoes and certain kinds of beans are also very high is that right yes but but back to the really big guys sweet potato people love sweet sweet potato. potato and it's really high people love a baked potato if you boil certain types of potatoes, you can bring the oxalate down, but when you bake it, it's all still in there. Um, so it's really tough because, you know, potatoes as French fries, as chips are basics in so many people's diets. Right. Sweet potatoes have become people's alternative because they're trying to be healthier and it's even more oxalate. So yeah, there's just, there's so many foods where, we really do have, you know, just this level where if you are doing this on an everyday basis, there's no way that your system is able to get rid of it. And then it starts to bioaccumulate and away yep. you go. Wow. That's crazy. Okay. So we mentioned also the clean 15. So this will be the good news <laughs> portion of this horror show. Um, so we've already mentioned cabbage, but what are the, some of the other plants that, that people maybe think would be high in oxalate after they're hearing this, but are actually pretty low and make your list? You know what? Kale gets a bad rap and conventional curly kale is high oxalate. But if you buy lacinato kale, go to town. So sometimes there are very easy swaps. Like lacinato kale has a fraction of the amount of oxalate in, in curly kale. Um, another great one, bok choy, high density, good nutrition, really low in oxalate would definitely make my clean wow. 50. Um, I discovered radishes as part of my journey with oxalate. And if you like steamed spinach, steamed radish greens are the bomb. Wow. Interesting. And again, a fraction of the oxalate. I think you can have like the same half cup of spinach that would be like 300 milligrams is going to be again, like one milligram. And um, while I don't like radish greens raw because they have a funny fuzzy taste, <laughs> <laughs> they're great cooked and and for those people who think that radishes the bulb would be bad because you know beets are bad and that's another red sure they're fine yep very low um obviously animal products are going to be on the clean 15 so eggs uh organ meats organ meats are like a, a multivitamin like if you can handle those, um, and some people can't because of histamine or other kinds of things that they have going on. Um, but I've actually used organ meats like supplements with clients who were in places where they couldn't get 
where they couldn't get supplements in over COVID because of issues with supply chain. And so, you know, liver, kidney, I would, I would try anything you're willing to try, but liver in particular, such good bioavailable nutrients and any animal product whole and without spices or whatever added to it, zero oxalate. Interesting. I'm so glad you brought up organ meats and you brought it up as a supplement. And I think what we're learning about people who are doing carnivores, that's probably the way to think about it. Um, Again, Dr. Bill Schindler, I've heard him mention recently that like, if you look at the whole animal, you get a ton more of the muscle meat than you do of the liver of that animal. And it probably should stay proportional in our diet where this, this is good to have, but you probably don't need a ton. And I, I see certain people that are having issues consuming way too much liver and way too much liver supplements, which can be good unless it's too much, and then you can have vitamin A toxicity. So I, I love that approach. I'm so glad you mentioned that in that proportion. It's like a supplement. It is like, it, and I do think of it like a supplement. I remember at one point, um, kind of going on a liver kick and having big portions of it several weeks in a row. I actually developed gout and it was wow. really miserable. So I, I agree. I think you should be thinking about the organs proportional to the animal. So if you bias to the muscle meat and add these other things as, say, condiment size portions, like I sometimes suggest that for people who want to eat something that's a little higher oxalate, think condiment sized portion, not a full plate of it. So you know, some people have a really hard time giving up things like like chocolate because there's a certain addictive piece to it, right? Now, I'm a little suspicious that oxalate, like other biological poisons, which are kind of mild, might have an addictive quality to it. But that aside, um, you know, if you can think of oxalate or of chocolate in terms of I'm having a small bit and then maybe I'm having it with something that's going to act as an antidote to some of the disruptive factors of it, then perhaps you can do it. Very Um, smart. The dose makes the poison. The very smart. The dose makes the poison. But in the case of liver and kidney and these incredibly nutrient dense things, you can have too much of a good thing as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think that goes back to what we were saying before about really pay attention to what your body wants. When I go to, when we when we go to Brazilian steakhouses, these poor guys like they are in for it because we're going to eat all of their meat for like an hour. It's it's vicious. But but I love chicken heart. But there'll be some days where I just don't have the taste for it when I absolutely love it. But also sometimes I I don't really feel like I'm in the mood for it. So that might be a time that I've already had enough of those nutrients and I don't really need to go in depth. But that takes paying attention to your body and paying attention to what you're craving at the time, just assuming that a lot of these things are really great for you, maybe taking it a little bit too far. So, okay. So for somebody who's listening to this, I know we've talked about so many different signs and symptoms that this is a real problem for people. What are some of the the top major ones that somebody listening to this conversation can say like, wow, I definitely have this. I definitely have that. I need to start looking at oxalate in my diet. Yeah. Okay. Number one, You're doing everything right, but you have an inflammatory condition that you can't get control of. 
That would be number one for me. You're doing everything right. You're following the best nutritional advice possible, but you have something inflammatory or chronic and you cannot get on the other side of it. That to me would always say oxalate. But but typical things that could be associated with oxalate. The research says things like joint problems like arthritis. It could be associated to oxalate, right? Um, turns out that oxalate, like, and I'll say this because researchers mince their words often. They're very cautious about how they write things. But there is a piece of research that um, is titled Oxalate Induces Breast Cancer. So if you're worried about breast health and you're a woman, if I can get any message out there, take down your oxalate. Wow. You want to eat healthy plants? Cabbage, bok choy. Uh, what do I keep in my house regularly? Broccoli, um, asparagus, uh, uh, the radish greens, um, you know, there's lots of things that you can eat. Um, you know, there's lots of low oxalate fruit, like think apples, think um, grapes, think mangoes. Like there's things that you can have that are really good. Um, rutabagas, is excellent, excellent low oxalate food. Turnips. So you can eat your root vegetables. You can eat the body of your vegetable. You can eat the leaves of your vegetable. It's just pick the ones that are nutrient dense and low in toxin, right? Um, other kinds of conditions. If you've got insomnia and it's intractable, you can't get to the other side of it. I can't, like almost a hundred percent of my clients have some kind of insomnia. Either they can't fall asleep or they can't stay asleep. Um, really common things could also include um, like asthma that doesn't have a clear trigger, but even asthma that's related to allergies. My son, who was not the one that where we found out the problem we found out with my daughter, um, her symptoms were more distinctive. She had, interestingly enough, rashes that we couldn't control that seemed to come and go without a clear trigger. And she also had pain on urination as only a three-year-old. Uh, and she had inflammation of tissues where uh again we couldn't we couldn't seem to get control of it and she was in the midst of oh she's going to kill me if she ever listens to this but she was in the midst of potty training (laughs) and so with her she was just sore all over in her private parts and like I wasn't a dumb mom at that point like first kid yeah you're a dumb mom second kid you kind of got your feet under you and like nothing I was doing was working. So it didn't seem to be candida. It didn't seem to be, it was oxalate. And that kind of issue, vulvodynia, um, urinary problems, uh, interstitial cystitis, because the kidneys and that system do so much of the work, they can be the first cry for help. And so um, if you've got those kinds of issues, uh, I would really take a look at Oxlate. I do work with another professional who is an IC specialist, and she talks very freely about how she didn't get her IC under control no matter what she did until she got that Oxlate down. Ah. Um, 
if you've got poor immune resilience, like I would get a bug and I would have it forever. I remember going to, to my doctor in my 40s after the first kid and saying, I got a cold and I can't get rid of it. And uh, my MD talking to me about uh, post-viral syndrome. And really, since then, I have never ended up with a virus that could just hang on and hang on and hang on. And I think part of it is this chronic inflammation, which keeps the immune system kind of tied up. So it's not really doing the work you want it to be doing right? You want it to be focused on the bugs. You don't want it to be focused on this chronic inflammatory stuff that's going on. So if you're, if you're suffering with those kinds of things, maybe, I mean, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I can't diagnose. All I can say is where I've seen problems and where they've benefited. And in my own case, I had chronic long-standing digestive issues. And one of the first things that started to clear up was my need to take you know, it seemed like handfuls of digestive enzymes. I didn't, within, within a few months of starting this diet, I had, I had no need for them. And I'm, like I said, I had my gallbladder out at 21. I'm 61. I don't take any digestive enzymes. So it's not losing the gallbladder. It's something else. And, and so, you know, Really, there's so many places where where oxalate may be driving something, but what I'd also say is something that I was always kind of aware of, which is it felt like something was wrong and I knew something was wrong, but I couldn't find it. And at one point in my journey, I remember my husband saying to me, bless him, he he, he's traveled through this whole thing with me, 25 years married now. And he said to me, what if this is as good as it gets? Like at one point in this journey, before I figured out what was going on, he said to me, what if this is as good as it gets? What if this is what your health is? And he was okay, but I wasn't. I said, no, there's something wrong. So if your intuition is yelling at you like that, like mine was, no, there's something wrong. It may be, it's just a thing that we're not looking for, right? None of our testing looks for oxalate as the trigger. Um, And as I said earlier, we only start to look for oxalate once we see kidney damage or kidney stones. What if it's doing stuff long before then? And frankly, if you've got kidney stones, your kidneys are actually working really well. They're concentrating urine really well. Great and, point. And so you're actually getting an early warning about oxalate because you're seeing it. But for the rest of us, what if our kidneys are just not as efficient at this whole thing? And that's why we don't see it yet. Wow. It's just mind-blowing. But I think of all of the things we've talked about today, having you say, if you think something's wrong and you can't pinpoint it, this would be a very high candidate for you to look at. There's so many weird things going on here. And and you're right from what you said earlier. They all seem like they're totally 
you know, divorced from each other. They're all individual things when it could all be the exact same thing. I think that's wonderful advice. And I, I would strongly recommend anybody to follow that advice and then to go to you and to your page and to all your resources and your coaching services, which can help people do this the right way. Because as far as I understand it, it also can be a little bit complicated to get off of some of this stuff. And, and you might not just go cold turkey and feel really good about it. There's a certain way that you have to get off of this. Is that right? Yeah. It's a little bit complicated because oxalate doesn't leave your body in a steady state. So if you excreted it and it was just the same and you figured out what worked to help you with it and on you go, that'd be simple. But what little research we have on how oxalate leaves the body is from things like liver transplants in people who have hyperoxaluria where it's genetic, where their body's actually building the oxalate. And so they do a liver transplant and then they see these funny up and downs in the blood as as oxalate sort of hits the bloodstream. And then it takes some time for that wave of oxalate to be resolved. And then the next wave hits the bloodstream and then it takes some time for that oxalate to be resolved. And certainly with um, you know, almost almost 14 years of experience on the trying low oxalates group, both as a member and now as somebody who helps to, to administer the group, that's what we hear people report. And, and so that does make it complicated. So it it's almost about building a toolkit so that when your body's having the stress of the oxalate leaving it, that you have an appropriate way to respond to that. Um, and it's, and it's also lowering oxalate intake a little more slowly potentially, because while there are those of us who have nosedived, I'm one of them and we've lived to tell the tale, I think it makes it more stressful, um, because it's similar in some ways to having toxicity from something like heavy metals. It's actually as dangerous as it leaves as it was when it entered. And it may have been sort of temporarily sequestered and not able to do as much, um, you know, disruption while it was in tissues, but it gets released back into that bloodstream and it's got one last kick at the can, right? And so what we really want to do is minimize the amount of stress on the person and on the body. And develop this toolkit so that if I start to have oxalate mobilization and for instance, it generates a lot of anxiety, but it's being generated physiologically. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not a personality flaw or a character defect. It's a physiological thing that's going on and we're hyper vigilant and the brain gets revved up. And so there we are, right? Well, what kinds of tools will help with that? Or if my digestion's off, what kinds of tools help with that? Um, there's, there are supplements which do seem to help with certain kinds of processes as oxalates leaving the body. And a big ticket item is just minerals, because if oxalates depleting minerals as it leaves, then how many of us are low in minerals? Like that's all the rage in the nutrition circles too. You got to take more magnesium. You got to watch your mineral levels, right? I think part of that's because we're eating these really high oxalate diets. So that said, one of the things I did at the beginning, mostly because I was brain fogged, 
and an insomniac and just, now I may have a master's degree, but that brain was not functioning at full tilt at that point. (laughs) Was I just let the diet do some of the heavy lifting and worked at minerals. And, and so that can really work for some people, but the more fragile you are, um, the more diagnoses you have, the more unwell you feel, the more likely you should find somebody who can give you a bit of perspective and help along the way. Because the other thing is, if you feel like crap and you also feel alone and like nobody understands you, really problematic to try and get through that in a way that is as healthy and as beneficial for you as possible. So you know, being part of the support groups can be helpful, although you have to watch if people are really negative and talking <laughs> a lot of, you know, a lot of difficult stories. But, you know, once I knew that it was Oxlate, once I had my game plan, once I had my supplements in place, once I had some tools, then I could weather the storms much more competently. And this is not a short-term process. It's a marathon, not a sprint, because you you can have oxalate wherever you've been able to traffic it. And for some of us, we may have it in the bones. And that's not going to be an overnight exit process because bones take a long time to remodel. So I had a couple of wild episodes when I was further into this, and I didn't expect them at that point. So you know, it really, you really do have to have built the toolkit. You really do maybe have to talk to somebody so you feel sane while it's happening. You know, I can't tell you the number of, of clients I've had who've said, nobody's believed me about this. You were the first person who yeah. understood. Like, so having that kind of support can be, I'm going to say almost equally as important as the, as the knowledge and the perspective on how to do the process. Yeah. Wow. Well, I am just so grateful for people like you willing to provide that support, willing to do the research. My simpleton brain just wants to tell everybody to just eat steak and eggs and you're going to be fine. Everything will be fine. It's like there's so much more to this story that more people need to understand. And and so to send people your way so that you can help them in a way that provides that support, that helps encourage them, that helps give them, you know, just somebody to listen to. Like you said, like that's so critical to, to help people feel like they're not going crazy. They do have an issue. We can fix it. We just have to be really smart about it. I think it's absolutely wonderful. This has been fantastic. (laughs) I love talking about this. Your energy is amazing. You say you're over 60. I highly doubt that. I think you might be in your 30s or 40s. But I so much, so much, so much appreciate this conversation I, and, and, and all the information you've been able to give us today. So much love your energy and, and, and everything you've been able to bring to us today. Where can people go to find you and connect with you and your work and potentially work with you? Um, they can absolutely go to my website, www.loxcoach, all one word, dot com. Um, they can find me on Twitter, LoaxCoach1. They can find me on Facebook. There, I do have a Loox Coach page, but I also can be found as Monique Attinger Dash Nutritionist. So they can follow me personally or they can follow my page. I'm there both as me as a person and me as a business. 
Um, I am also on Instagram as Low Ox Coach. I'm not there as much as some of these other places because I love conversation and Instagram doesn't seem to be as much about conversation. So um, just anybody who wants to follow me there, just know that you'll see me, but you won't see me as much there as you might see me other places. Plus, plus we're both older than 15 and so we're not going to be very good at it anyway. <laughs> There's that. I mean, if I'm sharing pictures, it's either pictures of my kids or it's a screenshot of a research link. So it's it's not, oh no, I shouldn't say that. One of the things I do do on Instagram, which might be helpful for some people, if they are do-it-their-selfers, is um, I do occasionally share pictures of meals that we eat here, just to give mm. people ideas. So helpful. Um, I do a lot of that, but also posting on health topics, things related to oxalate, menu plans, which can be invaluable for people, my own recipes, which I've developed, and that's all on Patreon. And um, that would be Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash Coach, um, And you know, for people who want to dig more into this or want to understand more about this, most of my material released is there and then will release elsewhere. Um, I do have a YouTube channel. There's not much on it right now. Low Ox Coach. And brand new, hot off the presses. So you'll be the first one to be able to tell folks about this. Myself and two of my colleagues who have also been administrators on the Triangle Oxalates coach or the Triangle Oxalates support groups for over a decade. Um, we have gotten together and we've started a YouTube channel under the um, somewhat funny, but I think wonderful name, Wizards of Ox. <laughs> I love that. And we called ourselves that back in the day, but it was kind of an inside joke. And now we decided, no, let's let's get some information out there. Let's help people. Let's let's talk about subjects. And we do a once a week live Zoom, and then we post that up onto the channel. Amazing. We've just started. It's a little bumpy, but there's like two or three weeks worth of stuff up there, and. Um, uh, my two colleagues are Carla Wiersma, who is right now in the middle of doing a PhD in nutrition, but she, you know, like me, is really interested in the food and developing recipes and working with people one-on-one. -on -one. She's just not quite ready to come out of the gate at the moment. And my other friend is Patricia de la Garza. She is a behavioral therapist, so she's got the feet in how do you make these changes? Once you've got it up in the head, how do you make it real? And she's done work for years with families, with kids who have autism. A lot of them can have a need for a low oxalate diet because of the amount of oxidative stress and things that are going on in their systems. Um, and she herself has a daughter who had an autism diagnosis who is now in university and doing all kinds of great things. Amazing. And so, oh, and you know, it, it's huge what this can do to help you fledge your kids healthy. My son had asthma and allergies. I fed him antihistamines like a food group. We got him on a low oxalate diet when he was eight. 
He's now 21. He's great. There's not this need for antihistamines all the time. He, you know, but he he cheats. So occasionally he has to deal with it. <laughs> he's 21. He's got to handle that. Exactly. And my and my daughter is now 16 um, and healthy and happy. And, you know, I just love that what I've been able to give to my kids in terms of health and also what I've been able to show them, which is, you don't have a lemon for a body. You need the right fuel mixture. Love that. Right? It's not like if I drove into a gas station with my Ferrari and I pulled it up to a diesel um, pump and I put diesel in the engine, the car's not a bad car. It's user error. Right? <laughs> and, 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 and maybe I didn't have the manual. Yeah. And so I would argue that in part, what we have to do is say, well, we didn't have the manual, but now if we've got the manual, what does this say? And if we get ourselves the right fuel mixture, what does that mean? And, you know, if, if, if anything about me is a testimony, that is that I went from being a tired, uh, irritable, low energy, not the kind of mom I wanted to be, to to the woman that I am at this moment and that my kids are healthy and my family's healthy and this just changed our lives. Wow, what a gift. That's so amazing. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. I so much appreciate you and all your work. Monique Kattinger, thank you so very much for everything that you've done. Thank you for giving that gift to yourself and to your family and for sharing it with others and helping so many people around the world. You've been so generous with your time with us today and we really appreciate you spending some time with us. So thank you so very much for this conversation. You're welcome, Casey. Lovely to be here. Awesome. It was such an honor. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. Thank you again so very much for continuing to listen to and support Boundless Body Radio. This little passion project that we started almost two years ago just continues to steadily grow. We are reaching more people than ever, and we keep receiving so many inspirational and amazing messages from you. We see it in all the reviews that we get, and we really appreciate that. So thank you so very much for that. We love understanding which guests you really connect with and which content you really appreciate the most. We wanted to take a second also to give a huge shout out to our amazing Yes, we love the people that we've been able to host and all their amazing content in these awesome conversations. And we have to say in the pipeline, we already have lots of great episodes that will be coming to you soon and lots of great guests. Some will be new to the show and others will be familiar to you if you have been listening to our show for a while. So look forward to that on our website, which is myboundlessbody.com. We are still running a lot of the same offers that we have been running for the last few months. These offers are complimentary and we've really had a great time connecting with people all over the world who are taking advantage of these. So if you go to our website, which again is myboundlessbody.com, on the main page, you'll find a button that says book now. You can book either a functional movement screen, which is a movement screening tool used to evaluate movement patterns to optimize mobility, fitness, and injury prevention, 
We do that virtually through Zoom with a bit of creativity. You can book that session, which takes about 30 minutes and is complimentary. You can also see another booking for a 30 minute consultation with us where we can really chat about anything that you like. We can talk about fitness or nutrition or help you come up with a plan for you to be able to reach your goals. As always, it really helps us grow if you leave us a rating and review. So please be sure to go to Apple, leave us a five-star rating and review. And thank you as always for listening to Boundless Body Radio.